Hello and a very warm welcome to this special edition of the Africa Legal Podcast, brought to you in partnership with our friends at Weber Wenzel. And I am absolutely thrilled today to be joined by two heavyweights in the world of international trade, these being Daryl Dingley, partner and head of the Competition Trade and Investment Group at Weber Wenzel, and Justice David Unterhalter, judge of the South African High Court and world-renowned practitioner and advocate with vast world trade organization experience. Gents, an absolute pleasure to have you with me today. Good morning. Good morning, and and thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, Daryl, and good to meet you, David. So without further ado, let's dive straight into some questions. And I'm going to start with you, Daryl, but obviously, David, feel free to dive in here as well. Daryl, as part of Weber Wenzel's new CTI, this is the Competition Trade and Investment Practice, some of the firm's new services include advising governments on trade-related issues and the negotiation of trade agreements. So up to this point, what would you say are some of the challenges or, or shortcomings of African governments with regard to international and regional trade agreements, you know, drafted or joined in the last 10 years. Uh, how are you looking at assisting governments in overcoming some of the challenges that they faced previously? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, question because you can probably write a master's or a doctoral thesis on this. I, I would ask you not to today, just on this occasion, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to focus really on, on, on just a few, um, a few shortcomings that, that I think are really important. I think, I think the first one, and, and just by sort of by way of, of backdrop, to answering the question is to say that you know Africa, you know, is is home to some, you know, thirty different regional trade, approximately thirty different regional trade agreements, many of which you know form part of um, deeper regional integration schemes, and I think on average you know each country has at least four regional trade agreements, and there is a multiplicity of you know, of various regional institutions and, and bodies. I mean, it's an absolute, you know, spider web. I mean, you've got ECOWAS, you've got SACU, you've got the East African Community, or EAC, you've got CMAC, CAMISA, um, and, and I can go on, your WAMU. There are so many different regional economic communities and regional uh, institutions. And, you know, so you've got all of these various different free trade agreements, um, and and a lot of uh, uh, arrangements with um, uh, with the European Union, the EPAs, um, and against all of this backdrop, of course, you've got you know increased um, you know you know regionalism worldwide. You've got ongoing Doha round um, of you know multilateral trade negotiations. You've got EU expansion. You've got various you know, preferential trade arrangements that are being entered into in, in Asia among some of those the heavyweight countries there of, you know, Japan, China, um, Korea, India. And, you know, with this whole backdrop, uh, backdrop, you know, one of the shortcomings, uh, one of the most important shortcomings that I see um, that, that, you know, is that through those, you know, through all of these different, um, you know, regional arrangements, um, has been the the lack of um, identification by African countries 
regarding the priorities in their trade policy. And of course, the trade policy informs these agreements that they've entered into. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and this trade policy obviously impacts on many different regional and multinational fronts. But, but for me, this has led to this regionalism and global regionalism in particular has led to defensive strategies um, that has caused or created a lot of these regional trade agreements and, and also sought to strengthen existing ones. And the, the, the defensive nature of these means that, you know, many of these countries have, um, you know, imposed, for example, import substitution policies, uh, which in fact decreases export trade um, as well as decreases into into regional trade to some extent, and I think that what you you know if if our if the overall aim here, particularly in Africa, and and you see it as one of the main policy drivers behind the Afri African Continental Free Trade Agreement, is that we need a liberal trade regime in Africa to support um, uh, poverty reduction and and growth strategies. We really need to encourage. Um, into regional trade, we need to encourage um, investment. So, so what I, um, you know, see, uh, you know, out of all of this is that, you know, hopefully we can, as a as a firm, get involved in advising on, um, you know, on on trade policy, um, advising also then on, you know, um, some of these these overlapping um, the overlapping nature of uh, these various agreements, because as as you know, in terms of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, that arrangements um, with um, third parties are allowed, um, but of course uh, the African countries need to receive similar or better treatment than now giving the the third party. But there needs to be advice around how to deal with um with the overlapping nature of um you know of these arrangements so so th so that's one of the ma the major shortcomings that i see of course i see other shortcomings in relation to how um african countries have dealt with um uh some of the, some of the inefficiencies that are affecting interregional trade so for example how um they've dealt with non-tariff barriers um you know inefficient customs uh, regimes and procedures and insufficient um, infrastructure, so I would I would see us hopefully uh, advising also on that because that is extremely important in in my view for um, uh, for this you know to to achieve um, the, the the goals of the African Continental Free Tra Trade Agreement, for example, and to achieve a, a, a liberal trade regime. It's very important that we um, address some of those issues which I don't think have been dealt with uh, fully. Um, through through the various agreements that are in place uh, at the moment, um, and and I suppose um, and lastly, um, you know, in terms of uh, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, I would see us as Weber Wenzel hopefully also advising on um, the rules of, of origin, uh, also on um, hopefully advising also on some of the protocols uh, that are still to come. Um, as well as um, you know, in terms of um, the tariff offers um, that are that are important, and uh, the the free movement of people, because I see the free movement of people as another key area which has not been addressed. And again, if we want to enc encourage um, interregional trade, we really do need to address the free movement of of people and allow um, 
people to to get business visas uh, and to move free, freely within um, within within the territories um, that are necessary to encourage this interregional trade. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on there, Daryl, when it comes to the free movement of people. It, it's something that's been under-addressed both in in previous, um, you know, trade agreements and, you know, to a degree under the AFCFTA, um, you know, more and more economies looking to move towards, you know, service-based with, you know, high-powered professional classes. And that's going to necessitate very, very easy and free movement of people, along with the goods and services or hard goods that seem to have been the focal point of of so much trade negotiation to date. And I'll pull you back to that spider web analogy. It it sounds like a web on web on web issue, if you ask me, the amount of complexity that's being faced um, by governments looking at how to move forward and and realise the benefits that something like the Continental Free Trade Agreement offers. And it leads me to to a question which um, I think, David, you're probably very well placed to to answer given your experience with the, the World Trade Organization, is what have African governments been doing prior to being able to access specialist advice when it comes to uh, you know, reviewing and negotiating their, their trading arrangements and agreements? You know, has it been a case of looking at, at foreign arrangements and replicating those, which, you know, looks like a dangerous course of action to me because of the African nuances and complexities that, that Daryl just touched on? You know, there aren't many regions of the world that have such a degree of overlapping and sometimes clashing regional trade agreements and, and, and interactions with other global trade arrangements. I mean, what what have they done to date uh, and what kind of problems has that presented? Well, let me take a, a step back. Um, I think it's important to, to recognize that um, trade within and uh, with Africa has historically constituted a tiny fraction of international trade, something of the order of about 2%. And that has been a function of many historical features, which we could go into, but I shan't for now. The fact is that uh, two important things have historically uh, been extremely significant. The first is that there have been trade relationships that have endured from colonial times that remain extraordinarily important around preferences that are of colonial and post-colonial origin. So the trade flows were by and large not within and between African countries, but between African countries and their erstwhile colonial uh, uh, countries. So that's the first thing to notice. The second is that The rise of post-independence Africa has been characterized by a very high level of concern for national sovereignty and with it high levels of protectionism. So historically, you have low levels of trade, uh, existing connections to former colonial uh, powers and trade flows often quite dominated by that. And lastly, as I say, sovereignty and a great deal of protectionism that has uh, been connected to it. Only 
relatively recently have there been significant rethinking of some of those patterns, but they remain extremely important. And then as Daryl has pointed out, what you've had are a whole variety of regional trade agreements, sometimes overlapping. You have bilateral agreements, and then you have African countries that are also members of the WTO at a multilateral level. And that sort of set of interconnections has given rise to a lot of complexity rather than simplicity, now overlaid to a further degree by the African Free Trade um, Agreement. And the truth is that a great deal of this, um, the, these, these trade agreements have not signified uh, to date to any great degree because so little trade was actually involved in the economic activity of these countries. I think that is now starting to reverse in significant ways. But I think that um, trying to develop uh, appropriate African free trade agreements requires a number of things. The first is it requires rationalization. Obviously, this the spider's web, as you've called it, has a lot of inutility, both by way of institutional uh, overlaps and, and the capacity is limited to service these institutions. And so that needs to be rethought. So there's obviously scope for consolidation and simplification. And that's where the African Free Trade Agreement has considerable force. There are also broader questions around, and I'll just briefly introduce them, we can come back to them, as to what is the fate of multilateralism in the WTO and what sort of role will African countries play as multilateralism itself plays itself out against a backdrop which is much more complicated than it was 20 years ago because we seem to be getting into a, a world of great power rivalry uh, where, for example, the battle that is taking place between China and the US creates all sorts of both possibilities and risks. Mm -hmm. And how to manage those relationships is, 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 a, is a complicated matter. So, you know, when you look at this backdrop, it's not really a question of saying, well, you know, get, get some independent advice and you're going to be able to sort out these very complicated questions. They are complex. Um, and of course, advice matters, but it's a complicated relationship of some technical features questions of global complexity, regional complexity, and political will to change the role that trade has played in African economies. And, you know, I think you make an excellent point here, David, that, you know, external advice isn't a silver bullet here. But to your mind, is there a risk of a further knotting of the spider's web if African states don't take a moment, you know, they don't take things very carefully and very considered in, in how they decide to operate or, or comply under something like the Continental Free Trade Agreement? You know, is is the agreement, in your mind, robust enough and clear enough to give the level of clarity needed and guidance needed for states to progress? Or is it yet another opportunity to layer on even more complexity? Well, I think the answer to that is that the, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement is extremely ambitious. And if its aims could be recognized and developed and realized, they would bring very great advantages to the continent. But 
the high level of ambition requires significant institutional investment as well as political will at the level of uh, the member states that participate. I mean, recall that the EU began as a steel and coal agreement between Indeed. a limited number of members, and it was built steadily over decades. And a great deal of what bound it together was the careful creation of institutions with significant capacity and, of course, hugely important political will to make the post-war world different that, you know, was fundamentally based upon an alliance, a political alliance between France and Germany. Now, the question is, where is that political alliance in an African context? Mm. Uh, there are many more states. They have many more disparate interests. They, are, they, they have not emerged from a catastrophic war happily, although there are many conflicts of, with disastrous consequences in Africa. You have to have political cohesion and institutional depth to realize these kinds of ambitions. And, um, you know, whether that is achievable uh, is still very much an open question. Of course, technical advice um, is a necessary part of moving the story forward because without it, you can't develop the institutions and you can't make them uh, effective. But you can see for, to have this work, you've got to put all the pieces together. One bit alone is not enough. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, your your answer and some of the topics that we're teasing out here just remind me of Daryl's comment earlier about this being a master's thesis. I think any, any one of these points, we could go into vast detail. But I, I will move us along, again, at risk of a thesis uh, uh, potential striking us. You mentioned the WTO, multilateralism, and the overall future of the organization here. A follow-up question that I'd like both your, David's, and Daryl's input on is the overall future of the WTO here. You know, as someone who experienced, you know, Brexit as a UK citizen, we were constantly having this WTO fallback. You know, it was always being referenced as, well, you know, if it all goes to pot, it's not great, but we'll fall back to WTO rules. You know, as more and more trading relationships are formalized through through trade agreements, whether these are region to region or, or state by state, how relevant is the WTO and its rules going to, to be? What does the future of the WTO look like um, in the challenge of a five-minute answer, if you yeah. might start us off, David? Well, well, let me make, uh, 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 let me give you a, a response as best I can in a short time. Um, I mean, there are many challenges to multilateralism uh, in a world that seems to be fragmenting in a whole variety of ways, which we can further discuss. My, my own view, though, is that although there are many, many complications to the future of international trade, the ultimate benefits of it are very significant, though unequally enjoyed. And uh, multilateralism remains a vitally important part of this larger whole. Now, what has happened in the WTO is problematic because significant major 
revisions to the agreements have uh, have not borne fruit. The most recent ministerial showed some signs of revival in that there was a fisheries uh, agreement and there were some commitments uh, around reviving the dispute settlement uh, system. But it's from a, a low base and from a base where there has been considerable disenchantment by major members of the WTO. And of course, it takes place against a backdrop of the China-US relationship. And when you consider the history of the WTO, it's got to move forward. You can't simply have a baseline set of rights and obligations that reflect the Uruguay round perspective of the world from dating from the 1990s. If it doesn't move forward, many think it will finally uh, drop away, um, even though it has a critical role to play. So there are many challenges. But I am still a, a believer that multilateralism counts. It does bring significant benefits. But as always, it requires this political will. There are many who wish to see a significant trade round resolved uh, in the future, but it's against a very much more pessimistic world, given particularly the problems of uh, the China-US relationship, which, you know, balks extremely large and which is destined, I think, to be the key variable, not just in trade, but in many areas of global life. Uh, you know, you're rightly pointing out the absolutely massive context here of the, you know, rise of, uh, you know, the power rivalries that are occurring. And obviously, the, the greatest amongst these being the, the US and China. I I'm going to take us on a, on a, a little journey down a road that will please uh, Daryl's fellow partner, Garen Rapson, and our friend very much because it relates to uh, a climate um, uh, ESG commitments, you know, very, very, very well used and sometimes overused buzzwords in, in today's uh, day and age. Uh, Daryl, interested in, in your opinion to kick things off here is – are you seeing already significant impact on climate-specific or majority-focused um, uh, bilateral and, and, and global agreements, you know, such as the Paris Treaty, on trade and its impact on African and, and South African agreements and, and trading relationships? You know, how how much is the global climate agenda impacting or starting to impact trading relationships between states? Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, what, what we're seeing in South Africa at the moment, and I'm, I'm going to talk from a South African, I suppose, and sub-Saharan African um, perspective, is that you are seeing a massive increase in renewable energy projects and the financing of, the, of those projects. And and it's and I mean it's it's obviously for for us in South Africa is extremely important given the the, the power shortages that we have um, in South Africa. But but it's um, it's phenomenal because you know with the, with the renewable uh, projects and the commitments to to the climate and the reduction in uh, CO two emissions, you're seeing the substitution away from you know the uh, you know, the coal-powered um, uh, generation more towards uh, these these renewables. You're seeing all of these uh, finance institutions stepping up 
to provide finance to these projects. You're seeing collective projects um, and you're seeing lots of foreign direct investment in, in these areas. And so, you know, I, I think it's having, uh, one, it's going to obviously benefit the, the, the climate, but secondly, it's, it's certainly generating a lot of foreign direct um, investment, which means that, I mean, from a, a regulatory perspective, is, you know, the foreign direct investment uh, laws which which impact upon um, trade considerably are, are really important and there needs to be um, careful consideration particularly in Africa as I think you know these these type of investments move up um, you know into the into into the greater part of, of Africa where there's a need for for power generation that um, there's coordination between you know the, the trade investment and competition regulations so that they speak to speak to each other because of course many of these projects that are driven by climate change you know will um, you know will result in, in sector regulation uh, and will result in in foreign direct uh, investment and David I know that this is a topic very close to your heart anything to add further on this well yes I mean the the fact is that um, following Paris and Glasgow and the uh, and, and the agreements to come um, we know that the kinds of commitments that uh, countries are making are uh, mean that uh, in some instances there are very accelerated uh, agendas towards uh, significant carbon curtailment. Um, I mean, if you take uh, the European Union, for example, and some of their ambitions around the combustion engine and the like, uh, you can see quite what uh, a, a, significant, a significant set of changes are likely to be taking place. Now, of course, under the these agreements, there is considerable variation as to how countries choose to achieve the commitments that they've made and under what time profiles. But you can see in the case of Europe that they're working to some pretty uh, rapid uh, changes. The, the, the trade impacts of this are going to be very, very significant because just to take the European case, which is probably the most advanced in terms of how they're thinking about things. I mean, Europe has already set out the carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which is effectively a way of preventing um, trading partners from abusing the situation, at least as Europe sees it, where, um, for example, cement or steel made in South Africa or India, which has a much greater carbon intensity, is not going to be permitted to be exported to Europe under conditions which do not, uh, which are highly unfavorable to domestic production in Europe. And so there's a whole mechanism that's being created uh, to ensure, ensure equality of treatment as between, say, European steelmakers and Indian or South African steelmakers. Now, that system is directly at the interconnection between trade and the norms that have created uh, under which trade takes place, whether they be bilateral or multilateral, and the way in which um, commitments in Paris or Glasgow and thereafter at the COPs to come are going to be implemented through national 
programs that are adopted, or in the case of Europe, uh, through 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 the EU. And of course, you're going to get an, another spider's web, which is that eventually the US and other major uh, countries to which African African countries will and do export are going to have become subject to. Um, these border measures that will have major impacts upon their exporting capabilities. So the interconnection between trade and climate commitments is going to become a looming and hugely important uh, area of interconnection. And, you know, isn't this just another example of pragmatism going out the window when it comes to Africa's relationship with with the rest of the world? I mean, if we have hard stop, you know, or hard start regulations with regard to carbon intensity of relating to vital exports for sub-Saharan African economies with no, you know, gradient or, or, you know, stepping stone approach. It's all well and good that, you know, this massive foreign direct investment increase is occurring in, in renewables, you know, and that's being encouraged, but there's no way that that's going to accelerate uh, and allow you know decarbonization to occur at the rates that the european you know border um, requirements would would require in 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 yeah. any anywhere near the time required so you know again lofty statements around supporting africa in its transition and becoming a greater part of the global community surely this is just going to be forcing africa to double down on its trading relationships with with china who won't be having the same uh, carbon requirements as, as other areas. I mean, I, I'm obviously quite passionate about this, but your thoughts on this? Is this pragmatism gone out the window again? Um, or is there a way that we can, you know, have the best of both here? Well, I mean, I, I think one has to be realistic about, uh, about this. I mean, I, I don't see, for example, that Europe is very likely going to say uh, to uh, its own steel industry, well, we're going to subject you to very demanding requirements in respect of reducing your uh, carbon intensity, but we are going to pay no regard to the carbon intensity with which uh, your competitors in other markets um, make steel, uh, because it would simply obliterate the steel industry in, in Europe. So although under the various commitments that different countries make, they can adopt different timeframes for the purposes of meeting their commitments. In a, in a sense, if you remain an important market for the world, such as, say, the European Union, um, you are going to become increasingly subject to the kind of regulatory pace at which Europe is seeking to meet its commitments simply for the purpose of being able to continue to have uh, access to those markets. Now, there are many questions that arise as to how far these kinds of measures are going to be subject to legal challenges, either at the WTO or conceivably under various bilateral agreements, say the EPAs with uh, the EU. But you can see that in the overall scheme of this, if you are a a large trading bloc such as the EU with significant trading clout in the world, your commitments are likely to have significant overspill trade effects for your major trading partners. Because just to take the example you've given, 
South African steelmakers are not going to be able to substitute the markets that they have in Europe for China, which is by and large a much more efficient steel producer, even if with greater carbon intensity in China than in South Africa. You, you, you can't just easily substitute one export market for another, particularly if you're thinking about trying literally to export steel to China. I mean, that is coals to Newcastle, and it's never going to be a substitute for say, European exports that South Africa makes to, to Europe. So this is a looming and actually imminent problem uh, that uh, developing countries are going to be facing. And South Africa, in respect of some of its exports, already starts to face the prospect of this, uh, this, this difficulty. Absolutely. And uh, we've skirted around another key issue here, which is... Uh, global power dynamics. So let, let, let's dive into this one for a, for a brief period as well. We've mentioned the increasing adversarial, uh, you know, and, and, and somewhat bitter trade uh, and um, political friction between the US and, and China. Africa's often been touted rather insultingly, I feel, as a pawn, uh, you know, between the interplay power dynamic between the US and China. So what what has this you know evolution of, of power rivalry between these two superpowers impacted thus far? What what do trading arrangements look like, both multilateral, regional and bilateral, as this power rivalry continues? David, you kick us off on that and then Daryl sure. feel free to add in. Well, look, trade is one component uh, that is closely linked to foreign policy. Um, I mean, China and its Belt and Road Initiative has played out with very significant investments across the developing world and in Africa in particular. There are now some quite big questions as to whether this has led to far too great a form of debt exposure on terms that are are insufficiently favorable to the developing countries. And what's happened in Sri Lanka is just one example of how this can go very wrong with quite significant political and foreign policy implications. The other part of this, of course, is that there are very big domestic agendas at play uh, where um, foreign policy doesn't rule. So, for example, it's extremely difficult to see in the context of the United States uh, how domestic politics allows uh, significant trade policy to be used as an outreach to, uh, as an adjunct to foreign policy. So, for example, the US is engaged in quite significant foreign policy rivalry with China uh, in, in Southeast Asia, but doesn't have a complementary trade policy to match it. Now, where does this leave Africa? Well, in some ways, it's at risk of having to make choices, which I don't think help it particularly as between the US and China. Africa wants good relationships with both, uh, and being forced to choose is not helpful. I think there are many opportunities, though, to foster relationships with both in a way that is ultimately in Africa's interests. But it's a very delicate uh, uh I wouldn't say game, it's a very delicate endeavor. And um, it involves foreign policy components, sovereignty components, but also how to secure trade interests in ways where you don't just become a pawn in a bigger power play as happened during the Cold War. That has to be avoided and I think can be avoided because I still think that the interconnections in trade and the benefits that it gives 
um, is still a vitally important feature both for China and the US. And uh, Africa can play to some of those natural uh, imperatives that still, I think, are an important part of the mix. Absolutely, David. Daryl, anything to add on this point? No, just just a, a, a comment, a more sort of more general comment that you know, um, and it's not it's not my comment. It's something that I've picked up in the press. Is that it's almost as if there's another sort of colonial scramble for Africa between those two heavyweights, um, both in terms of um, loans um, and also in terms of sort of strategic investments. And so you've got um, you know, and it's unfortunate that you have to almost sort of choose between one or the other. But I, I think if, if you look at, at Africa more generally, we'd probably be better off if um, if there was an accommodation made for both because, of course, they both bring, you know, different investments, which can obviously be very helpful for growth and, and development. Um, so that's just, um, just, a, just a comment. But there definitely seems to be a scramble for Africa at the moment. No, I'll follow up on that as well, Daryl. A quick question for you: Do if this carve up is actually occurring, do you see it occurring actively or developing into a uh, a, a a regional carve up, i.e., Ethiopia goes to China, Kenya goes to the US, and so on, or do you think it's being played out in more of a a sectoral basis, e.g., the Chinese are dominating in infrastructure, the US dominating in um you know, renewables and agriculture. How, how do you see that actually playing out? Yeah, I, de- I definitely see that. I mean, my, my comment is that I think I think US, and it's, again, it's just to, to piggyback on what David said, is definitely influenced by foreign policy. And I think, I think that the US has been slow and the Chinese are ahead. And certainly the Chinese are ahead in, in so far as infrastructure development and spend is concerned. I mean, you see it in, in Zambia at the moment, almost every single bridge there has been built it's been built by by Chinese construction companies, and you see it in. So you see a lot of infrastructure development um, by Chinese companies, and you see lots of loans um, being given by the Chinese government to support infrastructure development, um, as well as into strategic sectors like mining. Um, and of course, the Chinese have, you know, interests in certain mines to support their own policies. So you know they. They would invest in, let's say, uranium mine in, in Namibia to support their own power generation or coal interests to support their coal power, uh, you know, uh, power um, uh, requirements. And then you see it now, you know, more recently, the Americans coming in to support renewables and yes, certainly on the agricultural side um, too, where you see the, see the Americans. But my, my general observation, it seems to me that the Americans are coming second at the moment in terms of their influence over African countries. But I do believe that, um, yes, I think there may be at the end of the day, and that's why I called it the sort of another kind of colonial kind of scramble, is that there seems to be some countries that are more influenced by by China. And this is very political. I mean, you just look at BRICS and, and the political uh, um, you know, influence of, of China over many of the political parties in, in Africa seems to curry favour in their direction. David, any final thoughts on this well, I, issue from you? I mean, I think it's an extremely important issue, but just to, to raise a few, a few pointers. I mean, the one is it often seems seductively attractive uh, that uh, not only has China had a very ambitious investment uh, rollout through Africa, but of course, Chinese foreign policy is predicated on the proposition that 
it will not interfere or is pretty much uh, disregarding of the political arrangements of the countries that it deals with. Now, uh, that often seems seductive uh, to certain uh, countries with whom China has relationships, but whether it is durable in the long run is not as clear. So, for example, if you look at what has happened in Sri Lanka, um, you know, it's not only that the loans that were advanced um, have gone disastrously wrong, but so too has the whole political uh, rebellion against what has happened in, 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 in that particular economy and society. So I don't think that there's any sort of logic that simply says there is Chinese hegemony that will rule uh, without, uh, w- w- without, um, w- without any break. There is a rivalry that is going on, and Africa has opportunities to make use of that rivalry. I think, for example, just to take one, one instance, you know, very many strategic minerals that are vital to the um, energy transition are to be found in Africa. Um, and the U.S. is now much more alive to the fact that the strategic value of some of those minerals has to be pursued because not all of them are available or easily available in in, in, in other parts of the world. So I think one's going to see much more much more nuance in all of this, many more opportunities and uh, and some revisions of what has been uh, a degree of abstentionism by the U.S. Also, I think there's some mistakes made as to thinking about U.S. policy in Africa. I mean, for example, the U.S. policies in Africa around AIDS have been enormously successful. Uh, and, and, and you know, one shouldn't underestimate what kind of impact that has uh, had across the continent. Um, but similarly, with Europe playing these strategic roles and seeing Africa as a partner, we are moving into a world where trade, you know, Trump's aid uh, in all kinds of ways. And my last comment on all of this is that size is going to count. So to the extent that smaller African economies seek to position themselves vis-a-vis major trading countries like China or the EU uh, or the US, they're going to always be at a great disadvantage. But if African countries can consolidate their positions to, for example, engage in trade negotiations, um, you know, either regionally or ultimately through something that looks like an African union. Well, the size matters to the ultimate outcome. And that's ultimately where Africa needs to go if they can achieve some of the radically ambitious uh, goals that the African Free Trade Agreement posits. And to my mind, David, that's the most important point here, which is what can be done uh, by African states, whether individually or collectively, to take advantage of just how important this continent is and and being increasingly recognised as. And one just has to hope that short-termism and, you know, corrupt practices don't get in the way of what could be a real sea change for... I think that's right. But I I just point to an observation I made earlier, which is that if you look at successful unions uh, of the kind that I I think the EU is, it's 
it's constructed around some major economic and political alliances, uh, such as in the case of the EU, the Franco-German alliance. That was the bedrock of that success. Now, you have to ask yourself in an African context, how can, for example, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, um, and, you know, I don't know, possibly Egypt, uh, constitute the same sort of intercontinental set of bedrock alliances that are going to move this forward. Um, it's much, much more, it's much harder to see it. I'm not saying it can't happen, but, you know, these are areas with very different histories, with very different sets of interests, and to build those kinds of alliances um, is not not straightforward because there has been such um, such difference and such, as I've said at the beginning, assertions of kind of um, narrow sovereignty for so long. Hard exactly to see how this can be done, but not impossible. And correct me if I'm wrong, David, would it be East Africa, perhaps, which offers one of the most hopeful kind of regional, regionally connected, you know, grouping of states that that could attain some degree of, uh, you know, stronger bargaining tower, uh, power. You know, this isn't a continent-wide issue, but the East African, you know, one thinks of you know, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania um, in particular. Would you say that this is a grouping which is on its way towards the kind of cohesion that will allow greater bargaining power? Or again, is this going to fall short? Yes, I mean, I think the East African community has made strides that we have not seen comparably in other parts of Africa, and it, it should be built built from that. Um, I think still one has to recognize, though, that these economies, for all their promise, are still, even collectively, very small taken together. Yes. Um, and, and so... You, if, if you're going to, so I mean, there are two views you can take of all of this. The one is uh, we must go for maximum ambition, continental wide institutions and a major agreement of the kind that has now been formulated under the uh, African uh, free trade agreement and just go for broke with the most ambitious uh, agreement we can across the whole continent. I mean, the risk, of course, is that it just doesn't work. And then, you know, then what happens? Um, you know, the alternative vision is to build out from the more successful regional trade agreements and build through that further alliances between regions to kind of build out towards an African Union. But that isn't the path that has been taken, and time will tell whether it should have been. Absolutely. Uh Daryl, I'm going to have you close close us off by looking at the the C and the CTI. This being competition, and I think we're all very aware that there are very few African governments who have actually built effective competition regulation and and investigative capacity. Um, you know, SACU would be one of the only regional blocks to have an actively enforced competition regulatory regime. And I'm interested, as the interplay between competition and trade continues to increase, how might the AFCFTA allow for a simplification and streamlining of the adoption of competition rules across the continent 
which has previously seemed extremely arduous, you know, complex and and some would say unattainable. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that you have to go right back to the sort of principles of the agreement itself, which which talk about that the member states will cooperate on on competition. So, you know, it's the regime is based on cooperation, not necessarily harmonisation. But that being said, I think that um, I think that one would have to build on what's already there. So I think I think that that's really important. I think that one has to take advantage of the existing institutional arrangements um, and and work towards cooperation amongst these sort of national competition authorities. Um, and you know, I mean, we've already got uh, you know some some regional authorities in place. You know, the Comisa um, Competition Commission, for example, um, has been very successful. But I think I think if I if I had to look at it from the outside and to to get really to to the nub of of your question, I would say that the, everyone has to have all these member states have to have competition laws. I think. I think that that's really important. I think second, secondly, there need there needs to be some. Although I talked about sort of cooperation, I do think that there needs to be an agreement on a set of competition law principles. And I mean that shouldn't be too difficult because you know competition law is quite readily exportable and the principles are well known and and it's really there to, you know, uh, the anti-competitive practices, uh, and you know. Dealing with anti-competitive practices and dealing with changes to market structure are, are sort of well-known principles and are there to encourage economic growth. But I mean, I think that's the second. They need to agree on a on a common set of competent competitional principles. And then, lastly, I think what's really important is they they need to ensure that there is um, procedural fairness in enforcement. So that would be the sort of last element in order to to achieve this this harmonisation. So it's in summary, really, it's Building on on what's already there, so existing uh, institutions, existing uh, laws, uh, and and when I say institutions, both locally and um, and regionally, then coming to a, a, uh, then everyone agreeing that they will have competition laws and agreeing on that common set of principles, and ensuring a proper you know procedural fairness in enforcement. Thanks, Darren. I think yet another example of the requirement for collaboration and cohesion between multiple African states. And we've had a fascinating conversation of why that is possible, why that is complex. But uh, overall, uh, many, many exciting changes occurring in the, you know, both the global trading regimes and and those specific to to African markets. And uh, gents, it's, it's been a regular feast for thought. I, I couldn't have asked for two better guests to help a novice such as myself learn even more about the trading and global influences uh, on Africa right now. So thank you both so much for spending some time with me today. Great pleasure. Thank you. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. And if you are new to the Africa Legal podcast, don't forget you can peruse our entire back catalogue on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, you will find us there. And 
without further ado, I will say that this has been Tom, Daryl and David, and we are signing off for this special edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. <laughs>